For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Our Hotel Show. It is February the 8th. It's a Tuesday. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. A lot going on on the show today. We're going to call it another two for Tuesday. We did it last week. Y'all liked it so much. Going to do it again. Two Young Voices contributors. Uh, just kind of worked out that way, actually, to be honest about it. Uh, Travis Nix is going to join us. He's a student at Georgetown Law. Usually we have him on talking taxes and politics and stuff like that. But with the Elian Shapiro uh, noise that has been coming out of there, his comments, his apology, and now his suspension from Georgetown Law. He's there. He's on the ground. We're going to ask him directly about it and delve into that issue. Also, semi-related, as we we're talking about people getting in trouble for doing and saying things, um, our friend Gary and Frankel from Young Voice is going to be on. We're going to talk about censorship and libraries, uh, everything from accusations of pornography to corrupting the youth to censorship. It's been a big mess in our libraries and by adjacentness, our school system, because a lot of the libraries are attached to schools and so forth. We're going to get into that with him, talk a little censorship and those sorts of issues been on a lot of people's minds. Also, we're going to update two stories that y'all have been really asking us to get into. Uh, we're not doing segments on them yet, but we're going to explain why we haven't yet, what we're working towards, what we're thinking on that. We'd rather get it right and take the time and cover things properly. So we'll touch on those stories. We're going to end up at the end of the program. We always try to do a lighter note. 99-year-old skier checking off something on the bucket list. God bless her. We'll talk about it in a minute. But first, uh, let's talk China and the propaganda games that are masquerading as the Olympics. So the ratings over the weekend and first days of the Chinese Winter Olympic Games in Beijing are in and they're not great. Uh, it is the lowest rated uh, opening ceremony in a long, long time. 14 million TV viewers. This comes um, from Axios News. Our friend Kyle Smith, the over at NRO sent this out on Twitter. Viewership for the opening ceremony was down 43% from the 2018 Winter Games in South Korea. 14 million TV viewers made it one of the least viewed opening ceremonies on TV in Olympic history, according to the numbers provided by NBC Sports. Now, 14 million rating in and of itself, that's pretty good. Uh, that's a playoff-level NFL game. That's an incredibly good number in and of itself, but NBC is not paying billions and billions and billions of dollars for a pretty good rating. They expect excellence. People are tuning this thing out. Those 14 million people, frankly, should be ashamed of themselves for watching it anyway, because this is one big propaganda show for the Chinese Communist Party. I'm sorry that's blunt. I'm just tired of mealy-mouthing this thing. They shouldn't have the Olympics. They finagled and bought the Olympics because the IOC is a criminally corrupt organization. They bought the Olympics. They're using it in a place that doesn't even have snow most of the time. And they're using it strictly for propaganda purposes. We've already detailed on this show where they're using over and over again 
they're using this as a giant intelligence operation. They're scanning phones. They're collecting data. They're getting stuff from the diplomats and the athletes that attend. And we're putting our athletes in a terrible position. Even Speaker Nancy Pelosi the other day got in a little bit of trouble for talking about how the athletes need to be careful what they say. No, we're Americans. We don't need to be careful what we say. We have freedom of speech, and we shouldn't put our athletes in a position where they shouldn't have all the rights they're entitled to, both by our country and by their God. The Chinese Communist Party does not get to dictate to the world, but the world is letting them do it because of their economic might and because they want a little bit of the Olympic grift. We're not going to play that game. We're not participating. Matter of fact, I'm going to read a piece from Matt Labash from his Substack. Uh, highly recommend you get it. He's a national treasurer as a writer. Answering a question answering segment, he wrote it this way. Dear Matt, with the Beijing Winter Olympic Games upon us, which events are you most looking forward to? Andrea. Matt Labash write, writes it this way. The closing ceremonies. The Winter Olympics to me are kind of like presidential elections. I can't wait for them to be over so I don't have to think about them again for four more years. Not that I think about them all that much, even when they're transpiring. Whenever I see a Winter Olympic story, my brain tends to do the same thing it does when tiresome gas bags start prattling on about cryptocurrency or the metaverse. It tucks itself in for a long winter's nap. Make no mistake, I celebrate sport. I will drink at sports bars. The big screen helps the loudness drown out the inner voices of me, the futility of it all, and our pending expiration. I will wear a crisp sport jacket. I will not even oppose to getting a precision haircut or hot towel treatment at Sport Clips. Because what kind of Philistine wouldn't like a little taken off the top from an attractive stylist in a referee shirt? That said, I can't take much from the Beijing Winter Olympics seriously as sports. Curling, of course, is about as much as sports as me sweeping up the kitchen floor after my ice maker spits cubes beyond the rim of the glass. The luge is for lazy athletes who'd rather let gravity do all their work. And skeleton is a sport for those who weren't bright enough to make the luge team. They ride the wrong way down their slides. Just so crashing face first, they can suffer even more brain damage. I don't find much sport either in Chinese is not in the China's non-Olympic national sports, such as concentration camp building for Wagers, movie internet censoring, NBA bullying, and pandemic exportation. It's kind of an odd year to celebrate China when China helped shut down the world for the past two years. I don't mean to be peevish grudge holder, but a reparations check might be nice. They could just pay it in yuan, since that will doubtless end up being the global reserve currency after they help decimate everyone else's economy. Not that I don't appreciate the bounties of China. I've spent many an hour pondering the magnificence of Zhang Zhiji and Zhong Chen. I am making Suezhuan beef tonight, extra spicy, just like Zhang Zhiji. So I'm not some mouth-breathing nationalist who can't appreciate anything that China does for us. They make lots of cheap goods so that we have something to buy at Walmart. They keep us from spending $2,000 from our iPhone. Since most of its components are assembled in China's slave wages sweatshops, and every time I feel like my own country, our dear benighted US of A is hurtling into the moral abyss, I just look at China and think, we still have so much further to fall. So thanks, China. You're good for my ailing national identity self-esteem, but not for a lot else. Therefore, I'm conducting a one-man boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Neither will China be invited to my next birthday party. Not that they need to, att to attend in person anyway, when they can just surveil it through my phone. The great Matt Labash writing about China. I'm not going to be quiet about it. You shouldn't be either. Use your social media to complain, to make noise. The Chinese censorship online hates it. They don't like it, and they can't do a darn thing about it because those of us with free speech had better exercise it, 
because they have designs on making sure the entire world, including America, can never criticize the evil wickedness of the Chinese communist regime. Yeah, we've got our own problems, but they're nothing compared to what China's doing, and they're doing it on purpose, and they want to point out our flaws so that we don't point out their genocides, their human rights records, and the way they are imperialistically trying to take over the world through economic things, like in South America, we just saw places like Argentina, they're using predatory debt, places in Africa where they're using predatory debt to get leverage over other countries. They're wrong. They're wicked. The people of China deserve better than the government and the system that they are suffering under, and we're not going to be quiet about it. And if the Chinese troll farms and state-sponsored media online and social media accounts that want to play games and pretend like it's okay don't like it, tough, because we're not going to shut up about it. More heard tell right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. All right. So like we say all the time on this show, sometimes stories get really loud. We let them breathe a couple days. We kind of get to the heart of it. And we like to talk to people that are actually involved or they're on the ground. We're going to do that. Uh, the Shapiro story coming out of Georgetown. Uh, you've seen him recently on the program. Our buddy Travis Nix is at Georgetown. He's on the ground. So we thought we'd just ask him directly instead of opining about something. Travis, how are you, my friend? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on again. Hey, appreciate you coming back. We'll make you regular since you know how to behave yourself and dress up in the sports coat and all that. You look sharp, my friend. All right. This got really loud on social media, but you're actually on the ground there. You're at Georgetown Law. Was the caterwauling online matching what you actually see there on the ground? Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. I mean, I've been kicked out of group chats, not for defending Professor Shapiro, but for defending people who are defending Professor Shapiro. I was kicked out of a Georgetown Law group chat. You've had the sit-ins all of last week. I have never seen Georgetown Law as politically polarized as it is right now with students and faculty essentially attacking each other. It's, it's really something that's not good and healthy for the Georgetown environment and community at all. Now, let's be clear on a couple of things. Let's get the background down. He has already apologized for what he said. He deleted the. It was a tweet, I believe. He's already deleted it. Uh, the way he said it, uh, I don't think anybody disagrees that what he said came off wrong, was meant wrong, and that landed differently for anybody and folks know, not knowing what we're talking about. Uh, he was discussing the president's promise to uh, nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court. He was talking about it as uh, not a good idea, and he used the term lesser black women, which came across horribly wrong. Not really a defensible term, but he did apologize. How does that land with you? I know people are still upset and outraged about it, but you know him better than we do. You are a student there, so you have a little skin in this game. How did it land with you? What he said that he apologized and the reaction? Yeah, I think everybody knows what he was trying to say. He just didn't word it well. Everyone knows that he was talking about essentially affirmative action and Supreme Court justices should be picked on their merit and qualifications. And we all know Ilya Shapiro is not a racist. The person that he said that Biden should nominate is the chief judge on the um, D.C. Circuit Court, who is an Indian American. So if Ilya Shapiro was some racist, he would not be advocating that that Joe Biden nominate a minority justice. But he was just talking about that justices should be picked on their merit and not their race, but he just worded it improperly. And his response is what 
what in society we should want everybody to do. We should want people to apologize for their mistakes. And then we get over it. We learn from it. We grow. Instead, we have the dean at the law school who less than 24 hours after the tweet calls the tweet appalling and basically um, insinuates that Eli Shapiro is a, is a racist. And then a couple of days later puts him on administrative leave and repeats the same phrases. He calls it appalling. And he says that it might have violated Georgetown's discrimination policy. So I think the response that we're seeing from the administration is antithetical to the response we want people to have in society. We want people to be able to grow from their mistakes, and we shouldn't blacklist them for every single miswording of a tweet. Before we get into um, the subject of that argument, because I do want to touch on that as well, the the what the president said and how people are trying to I think not correctly put that with affirmative action, though. Are we getting to a place, do you think, where instead of forgiveness for the individual or uh, at least accepting an apology, part of the problem here is every time one of these things happens, it's no longer really about the individual at all. It's just everything else converges upon that point. And then we kind of lose what the act- whatever the actual deed was and the person involved, because now it's become this thing that everybody has to get involved in. Yeah, it's definitely evolved into a culture war. And I just think that's how people from the other side of the aisle, for both sides, um, when somebody says something remotely controversial, they read it in the worst light instead of reading it in the best light and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Then when you read it in the worst light, then you can bring in all these other extra culture war elements that we see. So it's become definitely a very politicized process. Yeah. And let's deal with the merits now. We're talking about Travis next. Um, I disagree with his argument. I'll lay out mine. You tell me what you think. Uh, I understand the way the president worded this is not a healthy way to explain it, but uh, President Trump has promised for a woman. President Reagan promised for a woman. There would be an argument here if there were not qualified black women for the Supreme Court. We do seem to have quite a few that are qualified for the Supreme Court. Is this a terminology problem or is it a philosophical problem? Well, it basically, so when we look at Biden's shortlist right now, we have a bunch of district court just, uh, judges and Justice Kruger on the California Supreme Court. I think Justice Kruger is the most qualified of the judges. I think there is potentially a problem that needs to be really um, hammered out in the Senate if Biden does nominate a district court judge, because being a district court judge, you're running trials you're admitting evidence. That's a lot different than interpreting the Constitution. That's something appellate justices do and appellate judges do, but it's not something that district court judges do a lot. Um, So I think there is potentially a merits problem, uh, but we'll see who Biden nominates and uh, what comes out during the Senate confirmation hearings. And part of the pushback on that will be like uh, an Elena Kagan, who did not have a a heavy appellate background. Also, people will say, is it not good to have some variety on the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I Kagan has surprised me significantly. I think she's the best liberal judge. She definitely has a has a textualist kind of style of interpretation, even though I don't think she does it correctly all the time. But uh, Elena Kagan has definitely surprised me on the Supreme Court. And if we want other types of backgrounds um, on the Supreme Court, that's up to each individual senator. I think that we need to nominate judges who the 
senators and American people know kind of their uh, judicial philosophies. It's really hard to have a set judicial philosophy, a public judicial philosophy on the district courts when that's not what you're doing day to day. What would be a good uh, diversity of thought, not so much the race, but the diversity of thought on the court? Because we've talked about nominee, they come from the Ivy League schools until, of course, uh, Amy Comey Barrett came outside of that system. People have talked about that. But what else would be important there experience wise, lifestyle wise, things like this? Well, I think like in terms of like judicial philosophies, we're losing Justice Breyer, who was a really big academic in pushing back on Justice Scalia's originalism. And he used a pragmatic approach that looked at the consequences of the law, essentially. And that's nothing that really any other justice on the court really does right now. So I think it would be really good to have that type of pragmatic approach back on the court with a really strong intellectual force that the court is losing with Justice Breyer's retirement. Another thing I want to bring up, we're talking to Travis Nix. Uh, he's a student at Georgetown Law, so he's a perfect person to talk about this situation with. This is going to be a liberal for liberal justice. This isn't going to change the makeup of the court. For the good of the country, don't we want the brightest uh, possible progressive or liberal justice mind on the court to hash out these issues with the conservative minds that are on the court? Isn't that a healthy way to have the Supreme Court in this partisan era that we're in? Oh, definitely, for sure. Um I think we need a really strong liberal intellectual force on the court, which is what we're losing again in Justice Breyer. And bring it back to the Shapiro thing, he said that the most qualified judge would be the chief judge on the D.C. appeals court, who is an intellectual force. He's really smart and a really brilliant jurist. Who do you think is going to wind up being the nominee? You know more about this list. I know we've seen the list. We know it's going to be a uh, woman of color because there's just no way he's going to be able to walk that back despite these controversies. I know you already said the one you think is the most qualified. What way do you think he's going to go? Because I'm sure you know, you're know you a law student, so y'all just eat this kind of stuff up. This is big doings when he gets a Supreme Court justice. Who do you think it's going to be? Uh, like I said, I, I really want it to be... Uh... Justice Kruger on the California Appeals or Supreme Court. She's uh, done a lot of, she's a pretty moderate just judge on the California Supreme Court. She's done some taxpayer rights stuff, like she tried to uh, strike down a couple um, taxes in California, which is, which are very interesting decisions. I'm not sure that President Biden's going to go with her, even though I would like it. It seems that uh, District Court Judge uh, Michelle Childs from South Carolina is really picking up momentum because um, she would definitely get a lot of Republican votes. Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott would both vote for her, and they could definitely convince some other Republicans to. So both those senators are really trying to get Biden to nominate her. So she's uh, another one to look out for. All right. And just to wind up back where we started with our buddy, Travis Nix, appreciate him coming on short notice to talk about Georgetown, which is where he's at. Uh, where does this end up with uh, Professor Shapiro? Do they wait for it to die down and bring him back quietly? Uh, does he even want to come back? Is this going to get worse before it gets better? Or is this going to start tapering off? You're on the ground. You've got the pulse of your, you know, your fellow student body. What do you think is going to happen going forward with that situation? Well, if I were him, I wouldn't want to come back with the way the administration, other students, and his faculty, his soon-to-be colleagues, have treated him. But he's he says that he wants to stay, so if he wants to stay, I will more than welcome him to Georgetown Law. 
Um, as far as it goes, he's on administrative leave right now. I don't really know anybody who survives administrative leave in academia. It's kind of a death sentence. But Georgetown Law has actually contracted out this whole investigation that they're doing, whether he violated our discrimination policies at Georgetown to uh, Wilmer Hale, which is a D.C. law firm. It's it seems like Georgetown Law, they're saying we're going to let Wilmer Hale do, deal with it and whatever they say is what they're going to follow. But there's really nothing to investigate. We have the tweet. We all know what he meant to say, and he apologized for him. So I don't know why we're having this, why my tuition dollars are going to this investigation, paying these DC lawyers a lot of money to investigate essentially nothing. So I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think the administration is going to go with whatever this law firm says. Yeah. And I didn't go to Georgetown, but I'll tell you why they did it. It's called, we're going to pass the accountability off on them and make them the bad guy when the decision comes down. Uh, Travis, next, we always appreciate your time, buddy. Uh, thanks for doing this on short notice and getting on a hot topic issue that can be a little squirmy because you live there. You got to deal with this, not just online, but every day. Let folks know where they can follow you and uh, keep up with what's going on with you, my friend. Yeah. Easiest ways on Twitter at TNIX113. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah, he's another one of those young voices, folks, we'd love to have on. Always appreciate him. Uh, we'll get back to talking taxes or something more fun next time, buddy. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right, sir. Go back to tell I'm Andrew Donaldson. Appreciate you watching and or listening, however you're getting the program. Want to update you on there's two stories that y'all have been reaching out wanting us to cover and we're working on both of them but i wanted to update you because we haven't actually done segments and or had guests on them we're working on getting guests on both of these issues and both of these issues are dominating certain corners of the media and social media so we want to cover them but i want to update them number one the truck convoy situation in canada a lot of folks have been asking when we're going to talk about this we are looking into it um when we go to look into a story like this here's what I do now, I'm not a journalist, but we do journalists adjacent stuff. I think we should have standards. We try to have journalistic standards when we're reporting on something. We want to give you good information. So one thing I do is when there's a story like that, I'm not Canadian. I don't know a lot about Canadian stuff. So let's talk to some Canadians. We've been talking to our friends that we trust in Canada, including a couple in Ottawa itself. And the stories we're getting from them are really interesting and fascinating and frankly kind of troubling. There's a lot of moving parts to this that are not getting reported in American media and American social media isn't talking about. Not everything here is as it appears, but until we have the story right, we're going to wait. I'd rather ha be wait and let it breathe and get it right than go off half cock and give you all bad information. But we are working on it. We're going to have guests on. Um, I've had multiple people that we trust that we know are good folks tell us there's things moving. Uh, there's some machinations to this thing. The real story of this thing isn't out in the public yet, but it's coming. Uh, so we're going to let that one breathe a minute. We're going to have people on in the ground in Ottawa or in Canada come on to talk about it. Also going to be talking some wider Canadian politics later in the week uh, with one of our returning guests. Now, uh, the other issue that a lot of people were asking about, CNN. 
Uh, we are also working on that story. There's some moving parts to that one. Uh, there is, of course, the Chris Cuomo lawsuit that's part of that story. There's the Jeff Zucker uh, resigning because he is a major media figure. He was supposed to be part of that Discovery Channel Turner Broadcasting deal that just went through. Uh, there's parts to that that have to be sorted out. And then there's the fact that CNN has had a really rough year. They've had multiple people come up on charges for stuff, staffers. They've had the on-air talent like Chris Cuomo, that situation, and his brother Andrew Cuomo and all that mess. There's a lot there. We want to make sure we have the story straight before we delve into it. Those are some of the things we're looking at. We're going to talk to knowledgeable guests. We're going to turn down the noise. We're going to skip the caterwauling and get to the information at hand. Two stories that we're working on. I bring it up because you folks keep asking about it. We're not putting you off. We're just making sure we do it justice and we do good information. That's what we do here. We're not worried about getting it first. We're worried about getting it right and having good information to discern the times we live in. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, nice, light topic. Porn in public libraries. Now, seriously, we got to talk a little bit about some censorship, some public... Uh, Forum also going to talk some education. We got Gary and Frankel with us. He's a Young Voices contributor. Uh, he's a Texas A&M guy. You can insert your own joke here. Uh, those of you from uh, other Texas affiliated schools, uh, but he's written all over the place. Uh, Gary, and how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Appreciate you having me on, Andrew. Now, anytime. Glad to talk to you. Another one of our uh, Young Voices contributors that we get to partner with. Okay, man. We talk about turning down the noise on this. We've had a lot of noise over libraries last few years. We've had drag queen story hour in libraries. We've had censorship issues in libraries. We just had the headlines in the last few days of school libraries and trying to pull certain things and uh, the graphic novels from the Holocaust and things like this in the library. Why are libraries, public and school, such a flashpoint in culture wars right now? Yeah, I, I think there's that's a, it's a good question because nobody really seems to have a firm answer to it. Um, I think there's a couple of different dynamics that really go into why libraries are such a hot topic right now. Um, I think one point is primarily historical. You know, we, we in America, even, on the, even the progressives, though they'll never admit it, like their tradition. And we have this long historical tradition of libraries being a civic hub in the United States. They're a hub for learning, they're a hub for civic discussion, they're a hub for information, and it's been that way for 150, 200 years. And whenever you see these kinds of cultural flashpoints take place, and you know, to a certain extent, this has been true historically as well, libraries have always been on the front lines. In a more recent sense, I think that the rise of the librarians' unions, uh, especially fueled by the American the Civil Liberties Union, has really added to this flashpoint because much like teachers' unions, uh, librarians' unions are overwhelmingly of a particular political persuasion, and they will use whatever leverages of power they have in order to spread that intensely political message. 
it's almost like the battle taking place with teachers unions, but with a different medium and a different history. Now, the pushback on that will be our progressive friends will say, well, this has been dominated by the other side for so long. We're just trying to even it up here. How much does this really matter? Because is there a disconnect between what we all see? You just said it. Uh, we think of the library as being this public communal hub. But is it really anymore? Or is this a subset of people that are still using libraries while technology has kind of gone a different direction? I'm a library fan. I like going to the library. I still go to the library. I have a library card. But that's a certain subsection of people. And a lot of folks have Google. Doesn't that dynamic play into here, too, that we're, we're dealing with some perceptions that might not be reality when it comes to these library situations? Yeah, and that has to be taken into consideration. Um, objectively speaking, there are far more people who get their information and participate civically on Twitter or other forms of social media than at the public library. But libraries have seen, especially private libraries, have seen a bit of a resurgence in recent years. Of course, not to what they were once were. They will probably never be that again. But they have emerged as an important point of discussion. But another thing that adds to this sort of library battle is school libraries. Because school libraries are still very important because school librarians generally aren't just managing the library anymore. They're doing a lot of other functions for the schools. Sometimes they'll administer testing. Sometimes they'll provide some form of counseling services. Sometimes they handle technology. It can vary depending on the district and, you know, the form of education involved. But school librarians still have a prominent role. And the American Association of School Librarians, which is the largest librarian union, in the country is a direct subset of the American Library Association. So, you know, all of these groups are still connected, um, particularly in an academic setting. Yeah. And we should point out too, that libraries are not just libraries. They're, uh, I know my polling place is at the library uh, slash community center. It's all one building. Uh, a lot of the COVID testing things have been in the library. So they're used for a lot of different stuff here. Uh, talking to Gary and Frankel. Okay. You, when you wrote about this in the Federalist, uh, you took a shot right off the bat, right in what we call the subheading, took a little shot at libertarians right off the bat on it, um, saying that just kind of hand waving and dismissing this. It's not just all conspiracy theories. What did you mean by that? And what do you think? What do you think is noise? And what do you think is actual valid concerns? Because we've all seen the freakouts over certain things with the libraries, the drag queen story hours, things like this. What is noise and what is a legitimate concern that needs to be hashed out between libertarians, conservatives and progressives here? Yeah. And so a lot of what qualifies as noise, at least in my opinion, you know, for about ever since the books came out, really, there's been this large scale war over Harry Potter. You know, you have people saying that it's unchristian or it's witchcraft or something like that. So Harry Potter has been challenged in libraries. It's been challenged in schools. It often appears on banned book lists. I really don't think we need to be having important policy conversations about Harry Potter. Um, as far as drag queen story hours go, um, and, you know, those other types of hot button culture war issues, what we have to be careful is to differentiate between what can be changed through policy and what requires a wider co cultural conversation to which the levers of change may not necessarily be through policy. Because drag queen story hour, for example, I can absolutely understand why a lot of parents and families would be absolutely horrified about it. But on the other hand, if you just start dropping the ban hammer on things, that gets turned against you as soon as you're not in power anymore. But I do think there is an honest conversation to be had about transparency. 
because librarians unions typically oppose any form of transparency or parental oversight over what their kids are checking out, what their kids are reading. And children don't belong to the government. They don't belong to librarians unions. If they belong to anybody, it's their parents. So I think there is an honest policy conversation to be had about you know, what rights do parents have in both schools and public libraries? Yeah, talking to Gary and Frankel. All right, let's hash that out because what they will say and the progressive folks will say is uh, the parental involvement is whether you're taking them to these events or not. It is fair for them to point out that Drag Queen Story Hour, that's a parent-led thing. Uh, Nobody made those kids do it. Those parents are probably going to do things like that in their private life anyway. Uh, It's a free country. They're going to do that regardless. This is how they're doing it. And they're going to say that parents can have the parental guidance is, well, you don't have to go to the library. You don't have to take out that certain book, et cetera, et cetera. Where's the line there, though? Because libertarians and conservative folks want to, you know, ostensibly or at least traditionally, they're against censorship. They're for freedom. They're for free speech. Where's the line in here of what they're saying? And I understand it's a public space, a lot of these libraries. So let's get that out of the way. So there's that argument as well. Where's the line there, though, where you can go, OK, I'm I have my opinion and you have your opinion and we both have a right here and still honor that before we get into a censorship and what you called the ban hammer. Yeah. So something I mentioned in the article in The Federalist is that there is also a distinction between censorship and parenting. Censorship is when one parent tries to block something for everybody else because they don't want their child seeing it. And, you know, if that was what people were really doing and then we could then that would be one conversation. But that's not what's actually happening, because what librarians unions and a lot of their supporters are claiming and then what they're actually promoting on the side and their own policies are not one and the same because they're not really trying to just provide an open open space. They're trying to block parents from parenting, because if you look at the inner documents from the American Library Association or the American Association of School Librarians, they see parents as the enemy. And they consider a parent blocking a piece of information from their own child, not advocating for banning it, not blocking it from anybody else, just their own child. They see that as censorship and a violation of the children's rights. I call that parenting. Because obviously parents are not going to want their kids, especially if they're under a certain age, to see certain things. It can be junk food, it can be porn, it can be, I don't know, some other piece of political or social information. That's parenting. That's what's always happened. So I don't see any legal problem with parents having some kind of access to what their children are reading and looking at, as long as that doesn't expand into others. Yeah, talking to Gary and Frankel. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and continue this conversation. Lots more to dig into here uh, because, yeah, it's just a library that's kind of a stodgy, quiet place, but it sure is intersecting a lot of things like freedom of speech, like censorship, like education. We're going to talk a little education with him, too. We'll be back with all of that on Hertel right after this. back to Hertel. We're talking to Gary and Frankel. Okay. I think part of the problem here is terminology. 
So I know it gets clicks and headlines when we say porn in libraries, but that's got a lot of meaning to a lot of different people. Is part of this just language where we talk about anything at all being the least little bit sexually explicit, we can call it porn, get a big splashy headline, and then we miss the entire point of the debate in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely a consideration because what qualifies as porn to one person may be completely different for another person. But I think there are books in li- in public libraries around the country that are being pushed towards children under the age of 18 that cannot, in any sense of the word, be considered as anything else besides porn. Um, one of the most infamous examples is a graphic novel called Gender Queer. Um, it's in dozens of public libraries and even in a few schools around the country. And Gender Queer includes images of extremely graphic sexual content, you know, anatomy and all. And it's unclear whether some of these images may in fact include children. You know, when a parent sees that that book is in a library readily available for children under the age of 18 and the librarians unions consider any attempt to stop the child from acquiring that extremely graphic book to be censorship, of course, they're going to get upset. And of course, they're going to start pushing back on that. Again, and here's the pushback on that is just so you can respond to it. There's graphic anatomy in the Bible. There's graphic Mm -hmm. anatomy in all sorts of things. And this is a book on a shelf. It's an inanimate object. It is not going to fly off the shelf and hit a kid in the head on its own. It has to be picked up. It has to be moved. And that's where the parental guidance comes in. Are we losing part of the conversation here with censorship by just not having some personal accountability involvement? Um, to a certain extent, I think that would be a much better argument if the librarians unions, which are very powerful in a library context, weren't actively attempting to block any attempts of parental guidance. And I'm not even talking about public policy levers. I'm not talking about book bans. I'm not talking about literary hit lists. I'm not saying efforts to, oh, remove this book from the library. It, from a policy perspective, if a parent tries to block their child from checking out a particular book and their child alone without any impact on anybody else, the librarians unions consider it censorship. You can find that in their documents. You can find that in their training sessions. It's all there. They do not want any parental supervision over what their own children are reading. Now, I think part of the problem here is Uh, You've also written on education. So this goes to education, too, is when you're talking about education, when you're talking about a teacher, when you're talking about a student and you're talking about a parent, there needs to be a relationship and a partnership between all three of those things or none of it works. We're seeing it in uh, the education fear where it becomes uh, teachers versus parents. That's unhealthy for both sets of people. And that seems to be happening in the libraries as well. How do we repair that? Because what we have now is a power struggle where it's, well, I have parental rights. And then the library is like, well, I have free speech rights. You're, you're never going to really gain ground there. How do we make this more of a partnership of, hey, you have a resource to give to the public. You have a child that you're trying to get these resources are. How do we make that more of a partnership and less of a policy debate? Yeah. And I, I think there's a different answer for that in both schools and libraries. Um, it's rare to hear this these days, but it's actually easier in the schools. Um, you know, it's no secret through my writing and through some of my other work that I'm a big proponent of school choice. 
So school choice doesn't just benefit children. It doesn't just benefit families. It also benefits teachers because since there are more schools, there's more variety. A teacher can work at a particular school that reflects their values, that reflects their pedagogy. So it's easier under those circumstances to develop a healthier relationship with parents and students. So like you said, it becomes more of a partnership than a policy battle. It's a lot more difficult in libraries because you know when it comes to schools, we say teachers unions, but really teachers unions have a lot more influence over, you know, upper levels of administration and financing decision than they do on what actually happens in the classroom. Whereas with librarians unions, there's a much more of a direct reach. So part of the problem with developing a partnership with librarians in some settings is that those librarians are prominent members of librarians unions. And those librarians unions have very particular guidance. They have very particular training. It's, you know, almost a setting of indoctrination because they have very particular beliefs and they want librarians to put those beliefs into practice, whether they're right or wrong or whether parents like it or not. So it's a much more challenging task with libraries than it is with schools. And, you know, for many people, there's an argument to be made that it might not even be possible in a library setting and that any type of real change is going to have to happen at the policy level or through some kind of third party, which is why um, I proposed a book rating system in my Federalist article. You know, we rate movies, we rate TV shows, we can rate books too. And then parents can make decisions based on whatever book rating happens, whatever book rating they feel is appropriate for their child. But librarians and unions oppose that too. So it's hard. It's, it's really hard. Yeah. Talking to Gary and Frankel. Okay. You've been beaten up on the teachers or excuse me, the library union, teachers unions by extension. Uh, but you actually end this piece with, I think, something insightful aimed at the parents of for whatever issues you may have with the uh, library union and their uh, leftward tent ideologically, giving the rightward tented parents whatever they wanted would be just as equally bad, if not more destructive to the purpose of putting knowledge in the hands of children. Yeah, because part of the issue is, and, you know, and this is a problem that I think with everybody in the political spectrum these days, we have this we, meaning the American political community as a whole right now, have this tendency to pressure for bans of whatever we don't like. Ban X, ban Y, ban Z. Oh, I woke up on the wrong side of the day today. Ban my bed. Um, And the problem with banning things is that, you know, it's all well and dandy while you're the ones in control, but people have this assumption that they're always going to be the ones in control. And they're not. It's just a reality of any kind of democratic or Republican system. It's just not going to happen. You are eventually going to lose control. And when you lose control, those institutions suddenly become weapons against you. And then suddenly all the things that you think are good and you think are right, well, they're the ones on the literary hit list. So I think that the real policy solutions, I mean, of course they're there's something here or there that should be banned based on some kind of clear empirical or philosophical conclusion. But, you know, that's not really applicable in this situation. It's much more about beefing up the institutions we already have and the institutions that, you know, both allow, that allow both a rich environment for free speech, but also give parents oversight over what's best for their kids. 
Let's loop this back to where we started to finish it off, though. Uh, we talked about the whole problem with this is libraries are traditionally seen as community centers, kind of like schools. Yeah. A lot of communities, the library is attached to the school. They are in my area. The The library is actually on the end of the school buildings or the community centers. They kind of have these multi-purpose buildings now. How much of this is the broader problem in society and in our culture and politics that we've just lost all sense of community? Because like you said, teachers unions, they get orders from their national office. Uh, the parents, they are listening and intaking a lot of national, cultural and political media. So now they're very upset about Drag Queen Story Hour in Columbus, Ohio, when they live in Texas and it doesn't really directly affect them. How much of this is just an offshoot of we've lost the communal aspect of our society of hey, we have different people in our community, we can go to the library, and this is somewhere where we need to compromise to kind of all get along and find out a better system. Yeah, we definitely have that lost that sense of community to a broad extent. And it wasn't, there was never a true threshold. It was, it's been a long process that's taken several decades. Um, but the problem is our tendency to nationalize everything is not only ineffective in alleviating that loss of community, it's making it worse. So I think in order to really sort of improve our civic health, we need to make things, we need to make more decisions at the state level. We need to make more decisions at the local level. We need to make individual people, they feel like they have agency in their own lives because when they don't feel like they have agency, when they don't feel like they have any sort of input, when they don't feel like they're being listened to, they sort of join these national movements that are sometimes and possibly quite often um, more destructive than they are beneficial. Yeah, I think so. And it's, and it's harder to yell and scream at somebody that's sitting in front of you than on Twitter or on Facebook. And we kind of lose our humanity that way. So good stuff. Like to dig into it more. We got to leave it there. Gary and Frankel, good stuff. Good writing. You're writing all over the place. You're a Young Voices contributor. Let folks know where they can follow you on social media and the writing stuff you've got going on so they can keep up with you. Yeah, I'm most active on Twitter uh, at Frankel Garion, literally just my last name, then my first name. And I frequently write in Chalkboard Review, Redefined Ed, and the American Institute for Economic Research. And I also appear in other outlets from time to time. Fantastic stuff. We did a good 20 minutes of good talking with you without a single Aggie joke. Praise me. <laughs> um, Texas A&M guy down there deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, Gary and Frankel, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you, sir. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. You know, we always try to end on a little bit of a happier note or at least a lighter note from the heavy topics that we have to cover. This one certainly touches all the bases out in Rapid City, South Dakota, out at the ski resort. Uh, this is from Fox 29, foxsanantonio.com. Rapid City, South Dakota, a 99-year-old woman who is young at heart, hit the slopes for the very first time. She had disabilities her whole life preventing her from doing so, but an organization called Ski for Light, L-I-G-H-T, is making her dreams within reach. Edith, 99 years old, has her family helping prepare for something special. She turns 100 in March, says Austin Pierce, Edith's grandson, and she has a bucket list. She's been waiting a long time to check one thing off. 100 years, Edith says, and it's an important one, top of the list. She's been limited with physical disabilities her whole life, Pierce adds, so this isn't something she's been able to do. Is it that bumpy all the way, asked Edith? I thought skiing was supposed to be smooth. You want to do another one, Broombaum asked? Well, Edith says with a lot of energy, Absolutely. The bumps, it would seem, were just slight setbacks. It's been bumpy, but that's okay. What made Edith want to ski in the first place was a simple 
it just looked like fun. One run, run turned into two. And then she said, I'll go a third time. Three, however, was enough for this nearly century old but young at heart young lady. She said, I got other things to do. Check skiing off the bucket list. This was wonderful, Lita said. Smiling, I think everyone should do it, even though it's really bumpy. Ski for Light is looking for volunteers to help others with this thing. What they did was this lady's had disabilities all her life, so they made um, a sled-like thing, kind of like a three-point sled where she's kind of sitting semi-reclined. Uh, they got her bundled up, got a helmet on her, and she got to go down the slopes and have a blast. I don't care how old you are, what age you are, or what your disposition is. You want to enjoy life? A little bit of sleigh riding will do the trick every single time. Take it from a mountain kid. There's just something special about going down a hill real, real fast on the snowy day. Good stuff for life, and that'll do it for her tell today. Appreciate you all staying with us. Uh, yesterday's episode was really important. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. Ashley Merriman, The VA Crisis. We've got more great guests lined up. We're constantly working to get the most knowledgeable guests on the topics of the day on the program. We'll continue to do that. Uh, however, you're watching and or listening, watching YouTube channel, Facebook page on Big Talker. However, you're doing that, make sure you leave a comment, leave a rating. If you get the option to do that, that'd be fantastic. If you're just listening, that's great too. iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcasting service you're listening to, we're on all of them. As for this program, every weekday, if you're subscribed for free, it only costs you a click every morning when you get up, depending on what part of the world you're in. This will be sitting there waiting for you, and we'll be ready to talk through the day. If you miss anything, Good Talks playlist on YouTube. Uh, that also comes out every afternoon on the podcasting platform's East Coast time. So we'll do this again tomorrow. So until we talk to you then, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And wherever you are across the street or around the world, we'll see you right back here tomorrow for more Her Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.